I want to begin um, before we read the text this morning, which is Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 22. We're going to look at verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. But I want to begin and first uh, thank Brian um, for preaching last week and say um, this in that I love the text that he preached. As I spoke with Pete Hewling uh, the past few months, we're working through the book. And if you're, if you're new here, we're going verse by verse through the book of Colossians, um, coming to the end of it, but uh, working our way through that. But as we've gone through that and talking to Pete, I had very much looked forward to preaching last week's text. And I want to say, um, I love marriage and all that the Lord not only blesses with, through it, but purposes in and through marriage. I want to say that again. I love marriage. And all that the Lord not only blesses with, but purposes in and through marriage. I love being a father. I love it. I love the blessings that come from being a father. I love the things that the Lord teaches through being a father. And in faithfulness to last week's text, I love telling kids to obey. (laughs) That being said, I'm grateful for Brian and him taking the passage as I was out of town with some of the boys. Paul's writing in this section on household relationships and how the Lord impacts those relationships within a home. As a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, we are to put off the old and put on the new, to become in practice what we are in position. We are holy and blameless before God. That is our true and everlasting position in Christ, our true and unalterable position in Christ. And we are called to start living like that. That position of holiness and blamelessness should be reflected in our relationships within the body. Paul's been saying that. And in this section of Scripture in Colossians, he's saying that it should be reflected within the relationships within our homes. That we are new in Christ. That we are holy in Christ. That we are blameless in Christ. Today is a difficult text as it relates to those relationships, but it's a text that we should find helpful even as it is challenging. And so let's stand together and follow along as I read. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters. 
Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your grace and we thank you for the grace that is the Word of God, that you have entrusted it to us and we ask you to help us. Help us as we come to this text that we would have ears to hear and hearts that are ready to receive the Word. Help us to believe. Help us to overcome our unbelief. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. The third household relationship that Paul addresses in this section is that of slave and master. And whatever tensions we might feel coming to this text are certainly matched and outdone by those in Colossae. Ancient historians estimate that there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, which would be about half of the population at the time. Conditions for a slave were not pleasant. They were not happy. Slaves were classified as things, as tools. A Roman lawyer named Gaius wrote this, We may note that it is universally accepted that the master possesses the power of life and death over a slave. For some slaves, the conditions were terrible. And we know this from our horrible past with slavery in our country. It is an abomination, a horrible truth that hits too close to home. And so I want to pause here and say this as we approach this text. Under no circumstances should this passage ever be used to say that the Bible endorses slavery. Paul at no point endorses slavery as an institution. It is the reality of the world he's writing to and living in, and so he's addressing those under Roman law as to how to live under that law as a follower of Jesus Christ. How does new life in Christ affect this? Verse 22, bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Bondservants is another word for slaves. It's significant, first, that Paul addresses slaves at all implying that slaves were assembled with the other Christians of the Colossian church to hear the letter being read. Let's remember that. This is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Colossae that would be read to the body assembled. And that's significant. And Paul tells these slaves to obey their earthly masters. Obey them. Maybe that would be exceedingly difficult to hear. But that is what they were called to do. And there's a hopeful qualification here, right? Paul doesn't simply say, obey your masters. He says, obey your earthly masters. 
These masters, Paul's saying, are temporary. They belong to this earth, this broken, sin-ridden earth. They are masters according to the flesh. Obey them. How are they to do this? First, they're to obey, he says, in everything. You consider that just for a moment. Uh, We're going to be honest here. We can't understand it. We can't feel it. We don't feel how hard it would be to hear that. But just consider it. Conditions were terrible for some of them. And Paul does say, as we will get to it in chapter 4, verse 1, that masters are to treat them fairly and justly. But this command to obey in everything is not contingent on chapter 4, verse 1, in the same way that these previous household relationships are not contingent on the other one doing what they're called to do. He doesn't say in verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as long as they do what I tell them to do in the first verse, and they're good, faithful, loving husbands who love you as I love the church. He doesn't say that. He says, wives, submit to your, own hus- to your husbands. He doesn't say, husbands, love your wives if they're submissive to you. There's no contingency here. Love them. Children, obey your parents as long as they're like I am. That's the Lord speaking, not me. (laughs) Obey your parents as long as they're perfect or as long as they don't provoke you to anger. It's just obey your parents. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger as long as they're good, obedient, respectful children. No, there's no contingency here. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. It's a denying of self. A dying to self. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Second, they're to, they're to obey with sincerity. Certainly, it would be tempting to obey their masters only when they are watching and out of reluctance. But the Lord desires true obedience that they obey when they are watched and when they are not watched that with sincere hearts they do what is expected of them. It's probably good for us to acknowledge at this point who is helping to deliver this letter to the Colossians. If we go farther into chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, Paul writes this, Tychicus will tell you, all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Onesimus was the slave of Philemon. The letter to Philemon is a letter to a slave master 
where Paul asks him to deal fairly and justly with Onesimus, his slave, even though he has fled from him. Telling him that Onesimus is now a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, and Paul asks for grace and forgiveness. And this letter of Colossians is in his hand, being delivered and would would be read with him there. Imagine the delicateness for Onesimus here. And surely Paul has him in mind in this as he's writing. Obey in everything. Obey with sincerity. And lastly, there to obey in fear of the Lord. Certainly, certainly, whether he has come to Christ or not, he's human, and it would be hard for Onesimus to return to Philemon. Whether you know what the book of Philemon says to Philemon or not, there's no assurance in Onesimus that Philemon is going to respond to Paul's encouragement. He's going just because it's the right thing to do. And certainly that would be hard. And if you ever think that God doesn't call us to do hard things, really hard things sometimes, then please consider Onesimus. Consider these slaves in Colossae who are hearing this letter read, obey in everything. It would be hard. But Paul says that they are to consider their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to do it as they are commanded to do out of fear and reverence of Him. Slaves should do their work with constant realization that they are working for the Lord Christ and not just for their human master. These slaves are not to obey as people pleasers, it says. Not because they'll necessarily be treated better because of it, but because of the Lord for the Lord. He calls for sincerity of heart or singleness of heart. He's calling for a focused concentration of the will that produces consistency in their conduct. But again, this consistency of Christian slaves is to be oriented toward their heavenly master. Fear of the Lord something we are all called to as believers. Having both awe in the Lord's presence and submission to who He is and to His will. Bondservants, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. He goes on, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. He's saying that they are to obey in everything. Slaves are to work at whatever they do with all of their heart. Why? Because they're serving a great and gracious and faithful master now who loves them. He's trustworthy He continues in verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance 
as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Slaves are called to work from their heart and should do their work with reference to Christ the Lord because they will receive an inheritance as a reward from that same Lord. I want to say again here, this is not at all because the Lord condones slavery. He doesn't. The Bible doesn't condone or support it. Consider these three things for a moment. In the Old Testament... Israelite regulations freed slaves every seventh year. Exodus 21, the Lord commands that. The year of Jubilee. In the Old Testament, they were commanded that the death penalty would be handed out for stealing and selling a human. Slavery then was generally not organized by race, but by circumstance and economics, whether it was foreigners or debtors or, or whatever. But not only that, when Jesus comes, he stands in the temple and reads from the prophet Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, where he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim liberty to captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus, after reading this, says, this is about me. This has been fulfilled in your presence today. This is about me. And and the text is referring to Jubilee, the year of Jubilee, the year when slaves were to be set free. Every seventh year, commanded in the Old Testament. But here's the thing. That was commanded way back in Exodus when the law was given. Do you know, according to the Old Testament record, and historical record that we have, do you know how many times it's recorded that those slaves were actually set free at the end of seven years? Do you know how many times? Zero. Never. Because every time the seventh year would roll around, those who were wealthy and owned slaves would look at their circumstances and think, well, this is not going to work out really well for my checkbook. And it never happened. We have no record of it ever happening. And Jesus comes and says, today, this will be fulfilled. Jubilee will happen in me. Christ comes to set captives free. And when He comes, He says, no more. Another thing we ought to consider is what I mentioned earlier with Onesimus. In Philemon, Paul writes to him to let him know that Onesimus has become a Christ follower since leaving him. And what does Paul write to, to Philemon? Paul instructs him to receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but as a dear 
brother. And he appeals to him in the letter to receive him as you would receive me. That's verse 17 of Philemon. Gavin Ortland writes this, In other words, Paul dissolves the slave-master relationship and erects in its place a brother-brother relationship in which the former slave is treated with all the dignity with which the apostle himself would be treated. Thus, even before the actual institution of slavery is abolished, the work of the gospel abolishes the assumptions and prejudices that make slavery possible. So again, the text in no way is condoning the institution of slavery, but rather writing to those who under law are entrenched in it. But he gives hope to those who are slaves. You will receive an inheritance as a reward from the Lord. Most slaves in the Roman Empire would have had little hope of any earthly inheritance. And yet, slaves who come to Christ may not have an inheritance here to look forward to, but they can look forward to a far greater inheritance and one that is everlasting, one that Peter says will never perish, spoil, or fade. And not only that, it's an inheritance that they will share on equal terms with other Christians. He goes on in verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. He gives a warning here. Again, the emphasis here is on the obedience to the Lord. The punishment is to be considered from that perspective. It's interesting that Paul urges Philemon, saying that he will pay any debt that Onesimus has incurred to charge it to Paul. That doesn't mean, however, that the Lord would give the freedom to disobey. And this is incredibly difficult. However, we, we have to consider that much of first century slavery was because people sold themselves for economic reasons, not the stealing of individuals that defined slavery in America. It's also possible that this last part is a reminder not only to slaves, but to masters who are addressed in the next verse. The New Living Translation says this, God has no favorites. Oh, that we would remember that in our relationships. God has no favorites. He concludes the household instructions in chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. He turns to the next member of the household in the first century, masters of slaves. Paul calls on them to provide their slaves with what is right and what is fair. Consider that. The Lord's commands to those who had slaves was that they treat them justly, righteously, and fairly. Now, what is just and what is fair? I think Paul's words to Philemon help us here. Philemon verses 15 and 16. For 
This, perhaps, is why He was parted from you for a while, that you might have Him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So we don't, want to, we don't want to misinterpret that. It's not that Paul's just saying how much, how great is it that now your slave is a believer in Jesus Christ and he's going to get an inheritance someday. He's not just saying that to Philemon. He's saying both in the flesh you should consider him as a brother and in the Lord you should consider him as a brother. Free him. Treat him justly. Treat him as an equal. Fairly translates a word that literally means equality. Treat them as equals. Treat your slaves in the right way. Treat them with fairness. Why? Because you know, Paul says, that you have a master in heaven. And here's the reality of the gospel is, we don't deserve it, but He treats you as an equal to Christ. He credits us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Treat them that way, Paul's saying. Slave owners might pride themselves on their position in society and in the household. They would be very tempted to abuse that position at times, but Christian slave owners are to remember that they are answerable to a higher master, the Lord Jesus, Paul is saying. And the master in heaven will show no favoritism when he judges. He will judge slaves and he will judge masters with equality and with justice. Now at this point, I want to ask the question, as we look at a text like this, 2019, so what? What does it mean for us? What does it mean in our circumstance? And what we might want to say is in our context, this would apply to employer and employee relationships. And in fact, many people preach this text in that way. And I want to comment on that and then give application. First of all, I want to say I don't fault those who apply this text that way. I think they're trying to make application for today. However, secondly, I'm not going to do that. We're not going to do that. And here's why. First of all, you and I are not in any way a slave at our workplace. No matter what we say about it, no matter how we talk about it, we are not slaves. Not in any way. Ancient and modern slavery have one thing in common, and that is the fact that one human owns another and has virtually ultimate control over that human. And we dare not say we understand such conditions. We don't. We live our lives with freedoms they didn't and do not have. We work 
then we go home and we make our own decisions. The second reason I'm not going to do that is this. In honesty, if we cannot hear the Lord's commands to slaves and masters and how they are to obey in everything, in conditions that you and I have never imagined or experienced, if you can't hear that and come away on your own thinking, you know what? I should really consider if I am working under the leadership of my employer in a way that represents Christ fully. If we can't make that connection ourselves, then honestly, no sermon is going to help us in that. If we can't see in the Scriptures that the Lord is calling a slave to obey His earthly master in everything and come away with, with how am I representing Christ fully in how I serve? then we don't need a sermon. We need humility. And third, I'm not going to do that because there is application for us in our context that isn't about how we treat employees or how we serve employers. And so I want to get to that and how we ought to apply this text. One thing we know that Paul is saying in this book of Colossians and throughout this section is that we are the representation of Christ on this earth. We represent Jesus Christ on earth. We are literally the body of Jesus. And what a blessing that is. We are the body of Jesus, the personification of Jesus. We're ambassadors for Jesus. Not for our church, but for Jesus. And therefore, if that is true, and a reflection of His character is justice and fairness, then we apply it by seeking and working toward justice and fairness for those who are treated as slaves. Just this week, the owner of the New England Patriots was arrested for soliciting sex from those who are caught in human trafficking. Every day, today, in this country, humans are taken and sold as products. We ought to seek for justice and fairness for those in our cities. Minorities who, when accused, have no means to defend themselves. The numbers of people, especially black people, incarcerated for minor crimes or crimes they are innocent of is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. If we just open our eyes and hearts to learn and read of the injustices around us, and I say that last part very purposefully, I want to remind you of a story from Scripture. Do you remember the parable of the sower? where Jesus preached the craziest sermon that's ever been preached, I would get fired if I preached that sermon. Because his sermon literally was, a sower went out and had seed, and he threw it. And some of the seed fell on hard ground, the path. Some of the seed fell on rocky ground. Some of the seed fell on thorny ground, and some of the seed fell on good soil. He who has ears to hear, let him hear the end. 
We have been spoiled because we have the whole chapter. But the people didn't get the whole chapter. The people got what I just said. That's all they got. And then he went away, and they're scratching their heads. But the beauty, the beauty of the text is that there were 12 people who cared enough about Christ and wanted to know, what do you mean? And so you know what they did? They asked. They went after Jesus and they said, hey, 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 hey. Uh, I don't know what a path is. I don't know what a rocky ground is. I don't, know, I don't know any of this. What do you mean? And Jesus unfolds to them. This is what I'm talking about. The seed is the word. And the one who casts the word is the one who proclaims it. Or the one who casts the seed is the one who proclaims it. And some of that is going to fall on hard ground. And people are going to have hard hearts. And the devil is going to come and, they're going to, and he's going to steal it away. And someone's going to fall on rocky ground. And, and it's going to look like the, the root takes... Uh, uh, into the soil, and people are going to look and say, look at this, there's a new believer, there's this new person excited about Jesus, but, but listen, it's rocky ground, and so it's not going to go in, and it's going to reveal that that person really didn't believe, they just got excited about what they heard. And then there's thorny ground, where another person's going to come along, and it's going to look like they believe in Jesus, but this thorny ground is going to grow up, and it's going to choke it out and prove they didn't really believe, they also got excited. But when they found out that following Jesus was really, really hard, they abandoned him. But there are those who are good soil. And when the word hits them, the seed of the word hits them, it goes in and it produces a harvest. Those disciples knew because they asked. And sometimes I fear as followers of Jesus, we presume far more than we ask. We presume far more than we research. We presume far more than we look into. That's true of myself. That's true of all of us. We represent a righteous and just Savior. And as His representatives, representatives of a good and kind and loving and fair master. He desires that we represent him rightly. That the world, that the world would see how truly good he is. That those outside of this building would see how good he is because of what they see in us. We're going to go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together. I want us to consider something. In all of the wrong that we have done, the gospel tells us that it was Jesus who took our punishment. He treated us not how we deserve, but far better than we deserve. Treated us how He deserves to be treated. It's the good news of the gospel. It's Jesus was treated on the cross the way that we ought to be treated. And, and in Christ, he treats us the way that Christ should have been treated. And isn't that how he wants us to treat others in our relationships? As we hold the bread and the cup, 
Andrew's going to play. Consider how we have represented his nature of justice and fairness in our hearts and in our minds and in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and thank you for your grace. Lord, you are good and you do good. You're just and you hand out justice. You are fair. You're kind. You're gentle. We pray that you'd help us, Lord, to be a people who respond rightly to your word. Lord, even in in our ignorance of so many things in your word, Lord, I pray this for myself, even my blindness and ignorance, I pray that we would have hearts that are humble and soft, that we would genuinely desire to do what you have called us to do and to seek out, just as the disciples did, to seek out what does that mean for us, Lord? We pray that you be glorified in that, Lord. We thank you for Jesus who rights our wrongs. Who did what we could never do. Who lived a life that was perfect and holy and blameless. And who died a death that was unimaginable. Bearing your wrath for our sins. We praise you and thank you for Jesus. And even as we hold the bread and hold the cup, we know that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed to forgive us of our sins. And we pray that you'd help us to remember rightly. As we partake together in a few moments, Lord, we pray that you'd help us that together with thanksgiving, we would confess your death until you come. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.